But thank you for fighting our battles. Oh, we pray that as we are seated and as we open your word, that it will be a bowing before you. It will be a submission to your authority and a readiness to say, God, tell us what you want, and we will be there. Oh, God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, and we'll ask our children, those going to Kingdom Kids ages 4 through 9, you are welcome to be here among us and to be squirmy as, as much as you want, but we would love for you to, if you want to squirm with the Kingdom Kids, they are meeting in the foyer right now, and uh, got a whole group with a teacher and a helper, and they're going to be uh, going over to our Christian Education Center across the street, and we ask our parents to pick those kids up from there right after the service. And ask the rest of you to uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5, it would be good to have uh, the Scriptures open before you. And if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to make use of the one that's in the pew rack there. The page number for that uh, edition is in the order of service. And there's an outline on the back of the worship folder to help you follow along. When Queen Elizabeth II uh, died last fall, there were many uh, memories shared by many people. Uh, One particular story from one of her bodyguards uh, named Dick Griffin uh, stood out uh, to me. He was accompanying her on uh, a hike, a walk, uh, near Balmoral, the royal castle in Scotland. And they were out walking, and they ran into a couple of American tourists. And it was clear right away, those Americans did not recognize her as the queen. So they did know that the royal residence was not far away, so they asked this, you know, sweet old lady, um, you know, if she had ever met the queen. And without missing a beat, she said, I haven't, but Dick here meets her regularly. Oh, Really? And now all their, all their attention is on this guy. And, and, and well, what is she like? And playfully, he said, well, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humor. So now they're moving to his side and giving the camera to the queen to take their picture with the bodyguard and asking her to take the photo. Then the bodyguard insisted, well, you really should get a picture with her too. So they, they, he, they, he takes a picture with them, and looking back on that, he said, oh, I just wish I could have seen their faces when they're showing these photos to other people, and, and they're finding out they had actually met the queen, and they didn't even know it. Our text today is a story of unrecognized majesty, but it is not a humorous anecdote. It is a tragedy, and we will see it is a horror. Because God himself is not majestic like our earthly sense of royalty. He is transcendent, he is holy, and he must be treated as such. The big question in our sermon today is this, what will you do in the presence of a holy God? What will you do in the presence of a holy God? In case you weren't with us last week, 
Uh, we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 4 how uh, the nation of Israel had taken the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines, their arch rivals, their, their nemesis, really. Uh, and know this, God, God did not live in that box, we said, not that, that Ark of the Covenant, that golden chest. God did not live in there like some genie in a bottle, but he was uh, present above that. It, there was something about signifying his presence with that ark. So when Israel lost the battle, stunningly, and the ark was captured, it was said in Israel, the glory has departed. The glory is gone. It was devastating. That's where we pick up our story, 1 Samuel chapter 5. Just read the first five verses of this chapter. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day." I perhaps should have mentioned before Dagon was their god, uh, the house of Dagon, some guy named Dagon. No, no that was the temple uh, that was their god. So here's part one for us this morning. Here's our question. What will you do in the presence of a holy god? Question for us. Will you set up your own god? With this passage, the scene shifts from the nation of Israel and its grief to the land of the Philistines, bringing home the spoils of war. And the big prize was that gold chest, the Ark of the Covenant. It represented the, to them, apparently defeated God of the Hebrews, the Lord, and they put it in the temple of their God, Dagon, who they thought had just given them a smashing military victory. Now, unlike Israel who believed in just one God, the Philistines, like most others, uh, peoples, cultures, believed in many gods. So even though to them, Dagon had proved his power on the battlefield, the Philistines figured, hey, wouldn't hurt to add the Hebrew God to the pantheon, you know, just to cover all the bases. Wouldn't hurt. Uh, we Christians believe in this one God of the Bible, the Lord, and yet we are we too are surrounded by many peoples, cultures, subcultures who worship different gods. And many of our neighboring tribes, and I'm not talking about people in other countries around, I'm talking about right next door, uh, right around us. Many of our neighboring tribes don't simply have one competing god. They are happy to take a little from ancient folk traditions or uh, some new age spirituality, uh, some modern psychology and self-help, and, you know, hey, throw a little Christianity in there. That's fine. A little Jesus. You know, just, just the parts we like, of course. Uh, you know, why not if it, if it works? But the Lord won't stand for that. Actually, Dagon won't stand for that. He falls down. All gods fall down, and the Lord will stand alone. So you just imagine those 
Philistine priest coming in for work the next morning and finding your God face down on the floor. Whoa, <laughs> wait, what happened here? Uh, hey, hey, Ralph, Dagon kind of looks like he's worshiping the Lord face down. Like, hey, yeah, just shut up, idiot. Let's just pick him up. Just, okay, oh, oh yeah, okay, get, him, get him up in his spot. All right, good. We got him. Don't drop him. Don't drop him. So, verse 3, the, the last part. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Folks, if you've got to pick up your God and put him back in his, his spot, he's not much of a God. He's a joke. Is your God saying, I've fallen and I can't get up? Now, most of you are old enough to remember those original TV commercials, an alert system for seniors. And now, if you are at that age, frail and unsteady, it's no joke. I've fallen and I can't get up. And perhaps, if I can be serious here, perhaps you've known that kind of indignity of needing someone else to lift you. It's embarrassing, but it's human We're all heading there if we live long enough. It's very human. It's just not very divine. It's not much of a God. Now, you'd expect the priests of Dagon to be, you know, this time, they're going to be pretty careful setting him up. Like, well, that never happened before. Okay, let's make sure he's, you know, solid, right? He's not tipping over here. But the next day, he'd fallen again. And this time, though, his, his head and his hands were broken off, or, or the text literally says to cut off. I mean, like clean off. It, it, this time, he didn't look like he was bowing down in worship. It looks like he was executed. I mean, in the way that a, a king, after being defeated in battle, would have been put to death in those days. So, which god won the battle back in chapter 4? Sometimes we look around and it seems like the Lord has been defeated. I'm talking about right now. We look around and it seems like the Lord has been defeated. Other gods or godlessness seems to have won. But folks, get this. The ark may be captured, but the Lord is captive to no one. Now, I appreciate the work of many apologists who defend the faith, uh, Christian lawyers who defend religious freedom, those, that's do, doing some great work. But in all our debating and defending, remember, the Lord doesn't ultimately need us to send in SEAL Team 6 to rescue Him. He's going to be just fine going up against the other gods. Now, another lesson that even a child could understand from this story is, is real simple. Idols are stupid, <laughs> and it's stupid to worship them. Now, hear this. The point of that lesson is not so that we can make fun of Philistines. Man, they're stupid. The point is that you don't join them in their worship. The the point is you don't turn from the Lord to worship anything, anyone else. Are you tempted to set up other gods in your life? I get it. It's in the culture all around us, all our neighboring tribes And it's not just other religions. It could be whatever you set up as supreme. We can can hear this kind of idolatry in our own kind of thinking and our own instincts. You know, we we think, oh, if only this person would love me, it would be my greatest joy. Or 
this, this new outfit, this new phone, this new car, that will make me happy. Uh, if I can accomplish this or achieve that, then I will feel like I matter. People will start paying attention to me. Or, or these investments, these will give me the lifetime of security and comfort that I want. Folks, if, if whatever it is, if it gives you purpose and significance, if it gives you protection and satisfaction, yet demands everything from you, voila, that's your God. That's your God. And let me assure you, sooner or later, that God is going to fall on his face. Your health will fail. The economy will tank. Your awards will be eclipsed. Are you going to keep propping up that God? going to keep gluing his head back on? Or will you abandon your false gods that do not love you, that cannot bless you for the one and only holy God? That's the word here. Let's get back to the text. Where we left off in verse 6. The hand of the Lord was very heavy against the people of Ashdod, one of the cities of Philistines. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of God of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath, another city. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, another Philistine city. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around the ark of of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. We're still answering the question, what will you do in the presence of the holy God? The second part here, will you send him away? Pretty understandable. Let's, Let's think more about it. Verse 6 says, the hand of the Lord was heavy. Does that sound familiar? If you're here with us last week, We saw that word come up more than once in chapter 4, first describing Eli, the the corrupt, compromised priest of Israel who was heavy fat. Uh, It also was the word described uh, to say that the Lord was heavy as in weighty, as in not to be taken lightly, translated as glory. Here it describes the impact of God's judgment. When, When we, though, think of the word uh, describing someone as heavy-handed, uh, we usually mean someone who's going too far. Here, the Lord is responding to those who have gone too far, thinking the Lord was their prisoner of war, thinking the Lord was a nice new sidekick for their God. The beginning of chapter 6 tells us the ark was in 
Philistine land seven months, so we shouldn't picture this as all kind of happening in one day. Um, Over days, maybe weeks, people started noticing new pains, new new lumps in their bodies. What's going on? And, and hearing more and more of their neighbors reporting the same. So verse 7 says, when the men of Ashdod saw how things were. So it's kind of like, wait a minute, what's going on? Putting the pieces together, the clues. Hey, wait a minute, you know when all this started? Yeah. yeah. It was when the ark of the Lord came uh, among us. So verse 7, again, second part of verse 7 uh, well, no, verse 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Five lords representing five major cities of Philistia come together and I just wonder, did, did Ashdod speak up first? Uh, we nominate Gath uh, to be the next city to get the ark. Someone else, I, I second. Okay, uh, all in favor. Uh, okay, four votes for Gath, one vote against. Uh, sorry, Gath. I, was that how it happened? Or, or maybe Gath, home of uh, the giant Goliath, who we'll meet in chapter 17. Maybe they were a little cocky, like, you bunch of wimps. Send that ark to, to us. I mean, we big boys can handle it. Uh, I don't know. But the same tumors and the same terror come to them. And the ark of God is now a hot potato. Like, I don't want it. You take it. No, not over here. You take it. You guys. That, that's, a, that's a funny story if you're Israel, but it was horrifying. A deathly panic. A very great panic. A deathly panic the way it's described here. You can understand if something like this is happening, the people are clamoring. There's a lot of accusation and anger and all like just make something happen, but get it out of here. And the end of verse 12, the end of the chapter, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, that could be merely a, a way of describing the decibel level. <laughs> yeah. Or is it more than that? Were, were they cursing God? Were they begging for mercy? Maybe all of the above. Uh, The tragic irony is that they should have cried out to heaven in repentance. Oh, God, what have we done? Please forgive us for our sin against you. We're going to see this actually very clearly uh, in chapter 7, which we'll get to next week, the issue of repentance. So that's not just me reading into this. What we have here, though, is people under God's heavy hand of judgment, and there's no surrender, there is no repentance, there is no turning to worship the Lord alone and forsaking the, uh, Dagon. They didn't want to deal with their idolatry. They didn't want to deal with their sin. All they wanted to do was push God away. Now, that's a very understandable response to pain, a, a reflexive response. Just make it go away. Ow, ow. Just make it go away. It hurts. Pull back. Yes, it, it's re- reflex. But they knew, they knew that this was no ordinary illness. Do you understand that? They had, they'd put the pieces together. We know this is the God of Israel that is, that is behind all of this. They didn't want to deal with God, though. I wonder, though, if you have that same reflex, that same instinct, suffering, 
pain, disappointment, loss. Ah, just, just make it go away. Whatever it is, just, just make it go away. Uh, or, okay, so, somehow I'm going to have to suppress this or I'm going to have to uh, medicate it. I, I, I'm going to turn to alcohol or mindless entertainment or whatever it is that you choose to just kind of numb the pain. I understand that you want the pain to go away. I get it. But what if there's more that you need to deal with? You've probably heard this before from C.S. Lewis, uh, one of his many famous quotes. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. Pain he says, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He's not shouting at you, but the, your pain is there to get your attention. Are you listening? Or will you just push him away? Will you push him away or will you deal with your sin? Whatever it is that's putting you in opposition to God. That's the question. What will you do in the presence of a holy God? Will you, will you just send him away? Push him away? Chapter 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the numbers of the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, it happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along the highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. This is part three. What will you do in the presence of a holy God? Will you try to appease him? 
So eventually the uh, Philistines figured, okay, we need to bring in not just the, our political leaders, our lords, we need to get in the, bring in the theologians, the religious professionals. We got to come up with a strategy for sending the ark back to Israel. And the answer comes, well, okay, you need to send it back with a guilt offering. Now, if you're reading this passage with your small group Bible study, you, the leader might ask, well, so were these priests right or wrong? Uh, well, there are all kinds of reasons they're wrong. I mean, they are pagan priests, priests of Dagon and diviners. What's that? Well, God had explicitly forbidden divination from among Israel. That is using omens, um, you know, tea leaves, tarot cards, whatever it would be used today, what they used something different. Um, reading, you know, the entrails of animals or whatever to, to figure out what's going on, to uncover secrets or hidden knowledge. That, that was just forbidden uh, right out by the Lord. And then there's this stuff about the golden tumors and the golden mice. What? My, mice. Well, just look at the beginning of verse 5. So verse 5 again says, So you must make images of your tumors and the images of your mice that ravage the land. So, yes, tumors, widespread, but so were these mice. And wondering perhaps if there's a connection. Some scholars have speculated that perhaps what's going on here is bubonic plague, which, if you remember your history, was spread by rats, right? And, and symptoms include uh, swollen lymph nodes, which can be, uh, this, is, this is not from my head, I got this, uh, bubonic plague, swollen lymph nodes, which can be large as chicken eggs in the groin, armpit, or neck, which could be described as tumors, right? Okay, maybe, but that's, but did God really want golden tumors and golden mice? Like, what? That's not the kind of offering that God said he wanted Israel to bring in worship, and that ox cart was not the way that God said it should be transported. But here, if we just jump to the conclusion that these guys are, are pagans and they're wrong and we just ignore this part, we'll miss the way that so much of their instinct was actually correct. And, and either way, God's word is how we, we decide what's wrong here, and God's word is also how we see what's right here. You follow me? See, they, here's what they knew by instinct, which was true. When we do wrong, something needs to be done to make things right with God. They at least got that right. When, when we do wrong, something has to be done to make things right with God. And so many people in, in and out of church are like these Philistines. We, we know we've done something wrong we know we fall short, and we try to make God happy with what we think he would want or what we think he should want, uh, which often is something that we easily have and don't feel bad about getting rid of. Uh, maybe, we, maybe we bargain with God. Would, would, would you get off my back if I just you know, offer you this? Would, would you leave me alone to live the life the way I want to if I just did some good deeds, if I gave to the poor, if I helped old ladies cross the street, if I recycled? I don't know. Would, would you? I mean, he might like that. But is that what he wants for you to make things right with him? That's the question. How would you know? I mean, do we, are we just guessing like these guys? Like maybe this will make him happy. Let's try, try this. See if it works. We're going to come back to that before this sermon is over, but notice something else these pagan priests get right. In, in Leviticus chapter 5, a guilt offering 
was what you brought to God when you were guilty of profaning what is holy. Ah, which is the connection they seem to make here in verse 5. Again, offer these golden images and give glory. There's our chavod, there's our heavy word again. Give glory to the God of Israel. In other words, you have not given him the respect he is due. You have taken him lightly. That's why his hand is heavy on you. Give him the weight he has and the respect he deserves. Verse 6, why, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh? That's a, that's a pretty good sermon, frankly, from these pagans. Why should any of us harden our hearts like the Egyptians, like Pharaoh, the story in Exodus? Is that something that you need to hear today from these pagan priests? Why would you harden your hearts? You need to make things right with God, yes. Are you going to harden, his, harden your heart and face his fearsome wrath? Or if you are ready to make things right, are you willing to do what he wants in order to be at peace with him? Or are you just going to try to buy him off, try to appease him with something less, something that you don't mind doing, something that you, oh, I'm willing to concede this. Okay, uh, do we have a deal? We'll get there before the sermon is over, but there's one more part to the text to to think about what do, we, what do we need to do? What does he want? We'll get there. Uh, but one more part to the text, and I, I need to warn you, it, it may be shocking. So, verse 13 of chapter 6, we left off in the middle of a paragraph. Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh, now this is Israel, were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. I'm sure, wiping their brow. Whew, all right. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guild offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beshemesh. The end, happy ending, nope. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. He who? He the Lord. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerim 
A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Wish we could have stopped earlier. Part four. What will you do in the presence of a holy God? Will you assume that he accepts you? Now, unless you were already familiar with this story, you did not see that ending coming. The Lord messing with the bad guys? Sure, you go, God. Smite them. Striking down some Israelites as soon as he got home? What? Come on. Take a closer look. When the ark arrives at an Israelite town, it seems as though the glory that had departed had come back. Oh, yeah. The people rejoice, immediately turn those cows and that cart into a sacrifice. Some commentators will point out that the regulations for sacrifice in God's law said that only bulls should be offered, not cows, which pulled the cart. But the text doesn't say anything at that point about that being, you know, problematic. It's at verse 19 where... Uh, The translation I'm using, the English Standard Version, says some looked upon the cart, like at the cart, at the ark, excuse me. Other translations looked into the ark, like they're prying open the lid, like what's in here? And according to Numbers 4, 5, and 6, whenever, whenever the ark of the covenant was outside the tabernacle, it was to be covered with something of a tarp made of animal skins, another cloth over that uh, for decoration, for beauty. They, they, it's true, they should not have been looking even at the ark, and if they opened it up, if that's what's going on here, it was an even greater offense. These Levites, mentioned in verse 15, the group assigned to these tasks at the tabernacle should have known how the ark was to be handled. But still, doesn't it, doesn't it seem extreme, severe? I mean, we were just celebrating. They were just honoring God with these sacrifices. It's, it's so, so harsh. And actually, even more so, I don't know if, you're, if you've seen this, in the, there's a footnote by those, the number 70, the 70 men. There's a footnote that says, oh, or 50,000, 70. What? 70 is, was pretty, like, pretty devastating. 50,070? Now, here's just a little sidebar. If you're, if you're thinking at this point, like, wait a minute, that's a big difference. 70 or 50,070. Now, how are we supposed to believe the Bible if we don't know which one's right? Let me answer this quickly. If you want to talk more about it, I'd be happy to chat with you later. But just a few things. These kinds of issues in the text are very few. These kind of issues do not deal with major doctrines of our belief. And as you can see, nobody is hiding anything. It's right there in the footnote. It's telling you up front. Fair. All right. So these details are important, but don't lose, don't lose the forest for the trees. What we have here in this story is in a flash, Israel has gone from rejoicing to mourning. They have suffered as many or more losses than the Philistines. And if that larger number is the accurate one, 50,000 and 70, more Israelites have died from the Lord in this chapter than they died on the battlefield against the Philistines in, the, in chapter 4. And that's where we get this clinching statement in verse 20. Who 
is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. Folks, nobody back then, we we think, oh, our modern sensibilities, we're we're not comfortable with this. No, back then, they were stunned. They were shaken. They were, their, their whole sense of, wait a minute, how are we supposed to live with this God? This is our God. This is our, our, our protector. This is our, our, the one who fights our battles. How, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? That's the issue. That's the issue for this whole text we've looked at this morning. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to be in his presence? And understand that, that the way that question is asked it's not asked like a trivia question on a game show. Who is able, name someone who is able to stand before a holy God. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. No, the question assumes the answer. Who is able to stand before this, holy, this Lord, the holy God? No one. Not Dagon. He could not stand before this holy God. Not the lords of the Philistines. Not the Israelites, not the Israelites who did not show him the proper respect. And we can say, oh, wow, it's just hard to, hard to swallow. I mean, why couldn't, why couldn't God be more like, I don't know, like Queen Elizabeth in that story with the hikers? I mean, I mean she didn't have their heads chopped off because they didn't bow down before the queen. Why do we appreciate Elizabeth in that story? Why why do we appreciate her for being down to earth, for being approachable? We appreciate it because even though she is royalty, she is acknowledging that she is human and at a very real level just like us. That's not God. See, we have, we have this weird thing with royalty. I don't know if you pay, you, you see this. We're all aware of it. You know, Americans, we don't, have, we don't have any royalty. We don't need a king. But fascinated, so many, so many of us, fascinated with royalty. You know, whether we, we dream of, you know, growing up and being a, you know, little girls dream, dream of being a princess. And, and uh, it's in a lot of, so many movies. And, oh, the dream of, of the, all the, the wealth and the regal splendor and the pomp and circumstance and the, and the, uh, the power and, well, it used to be authority. And, well, have you thought about that? The re- it's the fact that those, those positions don't have the authority that they used to, that they feel just like cheap celebrities in many ways. Harry, Megan. It's, it's, we've, we've, we've kind of sucked out the, the real authority from that royalty. They're just celebrities. And, yes, they are just human. That's not the kind of king that God is. That's not the kind of royalty he is. It is only right that we acknowledge a human queen as human, but we need to acknowledge the Lord as the holy God. This incident in this end of the story is not merely about mishandling the Ark of the Covenant, a minor violation of some obscure regulation. This is about whether we will honor God in the way that He deserves. It's right for us to want to see God as it would be as a tourist would want to meet the queen. Oh, wouldn't it be great to meet God? Wouldn't it be great to know God, to, to see Him, to, to talk with God? Wouldn't, yes, 
it, that's, a, that's a right instinct. Like a, a commoner wanting to meet royalty, but not as a mere photo op. Not as a, oh, I just, I'm just imagining putting this on social media so all my friends can see that I met somebody important. That's not what meeting God is about. It's meeting God in such a way that being blown away by all that He is changes who you are and strips away all that is not right in you. See, when you see God in His awesome majesty, in His untainted purity, you will either cower from His holiness or you will revel in it. You say, whoa, whoa, what? Okay, cower? That, we see that in the text, cowering from His holiness. How could somebody revel in this holy God? Why would we want to revel in this dangerous glory? Because it's in the perfection of his wisdom and the perfection of his power, the perfection of his love, that he is the only one who is worthy of worship, worthy of bowing before, worthy of our devotion, of our service, of our love. Yes, you can love this God. Yes, love, because you will know love like no other when you acknowledge him as being like no other. That, that's where it happens. See, God, he's, he's not a celebrity. He is the Lord, the one and only holy God. So, here's how we close the last part, briefly. What will you do in the presence of a holy God? The question is, will you draw near in the way he has given us? Will you draw near to him in the way that he has given to us, the way that he's provided for us to be able to draw near to this holy God? So for this, we really have to go beyond 1 Samuel 5 and 6 because all we get here are ways not to approach this holy God. And there's plenty to learn from that. I hope you're learning things from these questions that challenge us, not all the things we shouldn't do. But okay, so what should we do? At this point, you expect Jesus to come into the sermon. I hope so. That's your expectation. And you're right. Of all the problems that, we, that are raised in the Bible, Jesus is the solution. He is our salvation. But let's be very clear. Before we just kind of put a bow on it with Jesus, God's holiness is not a problem to be solved. God's holiness is not a problem to be solved. Yes, Jesus makes the invisible God visible We have seen his glory, says John 1, and no one was killed for looking at him. No. But even then, Jesus was more than some people could handle. Think back to the story in in Mark chapter 5. Jesus uh, encounters a man who is uh, controlled, uh, that is oppressed by numerous demons, spiritual darkness, so that this man who is under this demonic uh, influence is uncontrollable by anyone else. He's a menace to society. And Jesus, do you remember what, what happened after Jesus set him free, showing Jesus greater power over that darkness? What did the people do? People begged him to leave. Send him away from us. 
only Jesus had the power and the authority to overcome their enemy. But the people weren't comfortable around holiness like that. My question is, do you want to be comfortable or do you want a Savior? Do you want your life as it is or do you want to be saved, rescued? Folks, this is no time to be setting up your own God who cannot save you. It's because you can handle Dagon, you're, you're comfortable with moving him around, but, but you're unsettled by the Lord, this holy God. Oh, you, you don't want to send Jesus away, you don't want to push him off to someone else when he came to this world to save you. Don't try to appease this holy God with what you think he wants, the meager offerings that you are willing to give. In one sense, in one sense he doesn't want anything from you because nothing from you and me, nothing, nothing I can give, God is sufficient to make things right for all the wrongs that I have done. Same for you. But this is actually good news. The bad news that there's nothing, we, what, what could we do? What could we do to, to make him, his judgment pull away from us? What could we do? There's nothing you can do except what Christ has done. All he asks for you is faith in Christ, trusting in his perfect sacrifice, not our imperfect, insufficient ones. So don't assume that God accepts you because you are nice or religious, because, well, I'm not one of those Philistines. God's going to be okay with me, just sort of acting casual with him. Oh, no. You will be struck down on judgment day. But, if, but know that if you have embraced his one and only Son, approaching God's throne by the way that He Himself has provided for us in Christ. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? You can in Christ. That's the answer. I pray that is you today, and if that's still an open question for you, we'd love to help you get clear on that and to know that you can stand before Him one day without fear, only bowing before his royal majesty. Let's pray. Father, I know that we have only dipped our toes into what it means for you to be holy. And I pray that all of our speaking and singing, all of our life together here this morning and what we will go from here and do from this place will, would not be a not be taking you lightly, but responding to the gravity that you are, the glory 
that you are. Lord, for, for anyone here today who is unsettled by some of the things in this passage, the, the violence, yes, the violence of this passage, I pray, God, that in a, by a work of your Spirit, we would not push you away. But that understanding what is right before God, we would come and say, we, we need your mercy. We need your Son, our Savior. Oh, God, make us to be joyful in your presence because we have been forgiven and freed and welcomed into the family. Do this among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.